you will, turn in your Bibles to the 15th chapter, the Gospel of uh, Matthew, as we continue our study through the Word. So you will remember that Jesus had had quite a day. He had learned of John the Baptist's death. The disciples had been returning from when he had sent them out two by two. The crowds there in Capernaum were gathered around Jesus. And, and so Jesus wants to escape to get some time alone with the disciples. He gets into a boat and they head over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, over to the barren side, the eastern shore. And, and yet the the crowd had seen the trajectory of the boat, and so they ran around the top of the Sea of Galilee, and, and when Jesus gets out of the boat, there they are. And, and Jesus, you'll remember that he doesn't dismiss them. Jesus ministers to them, to each and every single one of them, long into the afternoon and into the evening, and the disciples are concerned that now it's getting late and there's no food out there, and, and so Jesus says, send them away, and you'll remember he says, you feed them, and, and we saw the magnificent multiplication of the fish and the loaves and, and that miracle. The, the crowds now begin to to want to take and crown Jesus and, and, and to lead now down to Jerusalem and, and have Jesus to be enthroned, to overthrow Rome. And, and this miracle, this multiplication of the fish and the loaves, it, it really cranked up, it ratcheted up the messianic expectation that, uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. And, and yet, it wasn't time yet. And so Jesus dismisses the crowds. He puts the disciples in the boat and sends them across to the other side. He retreats up onto the mountain to pray, to spend time with the Father. And you remember we talked about in your life when you get compressed, when your problems are overwhelming you, what do you do? Where do you turn to find relief and and so we saw Jesus set that example of, of just running to the Father. He watches the disciples and they row halfway across the Sea of Galilee. It's about seven miles across. They get to about the three and a half, four mile mark and the winds become contrary to the waves and they're going nowhere. The first watch of the night ends. That's six in the evening until nine at night. The second watch ends nine to midnight. They're still rowing. They're still not getting anywhere. Six hours of rowing. Third watch of the night, 12 to three. They're still right out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus could see them from the mountaintop while he was praying and and finally, now the fourth watch of the night, somewhere between three o'clock in the morning and six in the morning, Jesus walks out to them. And you'll remember that they thought it was a ghost and they start screaming and, and Peter says, Lord, if it's really you, then just command that, that I come to you. And Jesus said, come. <laughs> and we talked about what happens when God calls you to do the impossible. When fear and faith now are in opposition. When you know you can't do what God's calling you to do. And, and yet now he is asking you to extend yourself beyond your own capacity. Because his capacity is infinite. Amen. But we will never experience the infinite power of God. Unless we will trust by faith to, 
to enter into an eclipse of our own strength. And Peter does the impossible by faith, connected to Christ. He supersedes his own capacities and, and he takes a step and, <laughs> and the water held and another step and the water held and Peter is walking on water until his faith wavers. He stops looking at Jesus. He stops staying connected to Jesus. And, and he looks now at the circumstances, the situation, the, the trial, the impossibility of what he's doing. I'm sinking! <sighs> Jesus reaches out and grabs him. <laughs> oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? You were doing so good. <laughs> Gets in the boat. They're back over to the other side. and They're just south of... Capernaum, the fields and the area there, Gennesaret, and Jesus is well known there. The minute he lands, word goes out. Jesus is here, and everybody grabs their sick and brings it to him, and Jesus ministers and touches every single one. The religious leaders are continuing to grow in their opposition to Jesus. Jesus is dangerous. They have to eliminate him. They purposed in their heart how they might be able to do that. There was an initial delegation that was sent out to watch Jesus fall the way from Jerusalem, but, but now a, a greater delegation shows up. It had originally been the Pharisees, but now it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees together, probably an official delegation that represented the Sanhedrin. And now everywhere Jesus goes, they are trying to catch Jesus in, in anything that they possibly can. Jesus is retreating now from a direct confrontation with them. You'll remember that no longer is he teaching publicly in direct teachings, but now every single thing that he's going to teach here forwards will be in the form of parables. He will continue to uh, retreat. He will withdraw even out of Israel up to Tyre and Sidon, and then he will begin to make his way back once again. But the religious leaders now, when Jesus comes over to the other side where the crowds are, wherever the crowds are, the religious leaders are there. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. And once again, they're going to attack. They're going to attack why his disciples do not keep the traditions of the elders. Why are you not following our religion? Why are you not having your disciples to obey what everybody else is doing? You're a lawbreaker. And so the accusation, and we're going to see how Jesus deals with that accusation here in this 15th chapter, and, and we're going to see that Jesus is going to talk about the fact that it's all about your heart, not about the externals in your life. It's about the internals. Where's your heart at with God? Let's see how Jesus drives that message home here in this 15th chapter. Beginning in verse 1, Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. I want you to notice that we've got the, the scribes and the Pharisees, we've got the Sadducees and the Pharisees and together, and, and we see here that, that they are united now in their attack against Jesus. And 
And they are asking now, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? The traditions of the elders. Where did the traditions of the elders come from? You will remember that the Jews lost their homeland when they were taken into captivity and they were taken to Babylon. It was in Babylon that they stayed for 70 years. It was the consequences for the idolatry that had entered into their lives and they had turned aside from the word of God. And so God took them out of their land and destroyed their land. Jerusalem destroyed, walls destroyed, the temple destroyed. And for 70 years, they languished there in Babylon, lamenting the fact that they had strayed from God, that they had turned aside from the word of God. And, and while they were in Babylon, there was a commitment, a recommitment back to the, to the word of Lord God. God, if you would just restore us back into our land, we will do it right this time. We're sorry. The scribes began to copy the scriptures while they were there in Babylon. And they're copying and copying and copying. But when they would get to the hard sections of scriptures, they would add some notes. Help to explain the scriptures. And, and then the next scribe would take and, and he would add some of his notes. And, and so they kept on adding notes and notes and notes. And, and pretty soon it started to get blurred between the notes and the scriptures themselves. And and then pretty soon that was the traditions uh, that the scribes had written now, the interpretations of the scriptures now that, uh, that began to, to be employed and people started to follow them. One of the traditions was the, the ceremonial washings. It started with the priests in Leviticus. There is recorded the, uh, the washings uh, that was to take place by the priests before they offered sacrifices. And, and so these washings now started to become elaborate. It, it, it then became that the, the Pharisees, the Pharisees, remember, they were the ones that were trying to keep every single law, every single commandment. They looked at what the priests were doing to wash themselves ceremonially before they were clean to offer sacrifices. And, and they said, we need to start washing as well. And so they started to copy now the practices of the priests uh, for themselves. And so the issue was uncleanness. Uncleanness was that aspect of your life that sets you outside of worship with God. When you were clean, you could come into the presence. You, you could now offer your sacrifices. You were connected to community and you were connected to God. When you were unclean, you now were disconnected from community and you couldn't enter in to worship with God. So if you were a Jew, it was all about being clean. All about being clean. And so all of the Jews, the, the entire nation, sought with all their heart to, to be clean. Now, you'll remember that there was the defilement that would take place. The defilement would happen if you touched things. If you touched anything that was dead, you became defiled. Once you became defiled, if, if you touched anybody, they became defiled. If they touched anybody, and so it would spread. So keeping yourself clean, this was of utmost importance. Now, one of the challenges was that they considered Gentiles to be unclean. And so the Gentiles that were living there, when they walked on the ground, every bit of dust that they touched became unclean. 
When you stepped where a Gentile stepped, guess what? You just became unclean. Once you're unclean, everything you touch becomes unclean. You go to the market, you step where a Gentile stepped, you're unclean. You touch some fruit, it becomes unclean. The next person comes and touches that fruit, they become unclean. And, and so it would spread. And so the, the tradition of making sure that this defilement that had taken place uh, without even your knowledge just if you were out you were probably had come into some type of contamination of uh, of being unclean and so they would wash their hands before they would eat to deal with their uncleanness so that they would have clean hands when they would bless the food when they would partake of their meal. They would always have large pots of water, and the water was to be used for the ceremonial cleansing of your hands. And so it was prescribed exactly how you were to wash your hands. You were to, uh, to take an amount of water that was to be no less uh, than one and a half eggshells uh, of water. You were to hold your hands uh, uh, upward, fingers pointing to the sky, and you were to pour the water uh, onto your hands. As the water now mm, touched your hands and washed away the ceremonially unclean aspect of your hands, it became unclean. And so you would let the water drip off of your wrists. You couldn't turn your hands and shake them because now the unclean water would come back down onto your hands again. And, you're back to being unclean again. So once it dripped uh, off of your wrist, you didn't let it run down your arm because it being unclean, you now would be contaminated again. After having washed your hands this way, you would then repeat the process, this time starting at your wrists and running offwards and dripping. You were to do this before you ever sat down to a meal. And the really... Orthodox Jew would do it not just before the meal, but between each course that was served. Jesus' disciples weren't even washing their hands, let alone between courses. And Jesus was okay with it. And here is everybody else washing their hands and making sure that their hands are clean in order to sit down to a meal and and there's just this freedom that the disciples have. And those that were keeping the, the traditions, because these were traditions, they were offended that Jesus and his disciples were, were not keeping it. And so, give an account. Why are you eating food with unclean hands? Is the real charge why are you breaking the law of god and not practicing our religion and so we see that in jesus uh, now he responds he answered and said to them why do you also transgress the commandment of god because of your traditions for god commanded saying honor your father and your mother and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. Jesus now states, you're accusing us of not keeping the traditions of the elders. 
But Jesus accuses them of not keeping one of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> he says, why are you transgressing the Fifth Commandment, which is to honor and obey your mother and your father, that it may go well with you, and that your life may be blessed? But you say, whoever says to father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me as a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother, and thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Part of honoring your parents is the responsibility to show them respect and love, but also to help them meet their needs. One tradition taught that a son is bound to support his father even if he has to beg to do that. But there was now this new tradition. It was called Corbin. The word Corbin means dedicated to God. And so what would happen is, is that if your father shows up and, and he is in need financially and, and you don't want to help him, you would simply say to him, Dad, all that I have is Corbin. It's been dedicated to God, and therefore I can't give to you what is God's. It was just a simple vow. You never lost possession. You never lost control of it. And you were able to just as easily uncorbonize it whenever you needed it personally. <laughs> and so we see that it was just the circumventing of the fifth commandment. It was just a way that the tradition of man now was getting around the heart of God and the purpose and the intent. Hypocrites, Jesus says. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This was spoken by Isaiah. Isaiah ministered before they ended up going into captivity. We see the problem of blurring the traditions of man with the commandments of God. And so he says, in, in vain you're worshiping me. You're a rule keeper, but your heart is far from me. And so we see here that Jesus now is exposing their hypocrisy and, and how futile that hypocrisy is. The true worship of God must be done with the heart and cannot just be an external form of rules and regulations. William Temple said this, to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. Religion can never be about ceremonies or rituals or rules or regulations, but it has to always be centered in the personal relationship between us and God. 
And when he had called the multitude to himself, verse 10, he said to them, Hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. I want you to know of all the things that Jesus ever said, this may very well have been the most startling thing that they had ever heard in their entire life. Remember that their whole life was about clean and unclean. And there were foods that were unclean. There were certain foods that you were not allowed to, uh, to eat. You were not allowed to eat bacon. You were not allowed to eat lobster. And on and on the list went of the clean and the unclean. And, and, and suddenly now Jesus just says that, that it's not what goes into your mouth that, that defiles you. Well, Peter and the others, their entire life had lived by the exclusion of the clean and the unclean food. What, what do you mean? I can go to Jack in the Box and get a double cheeseburger with bacon. <laughs> I, I, I've never been able to do that. That would defile me. And now you're saying that nothing I put into my mouth would, would defile me? We see that Mark's gospel explains that Jesus says, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him because it does not enter his heart but his stomach and is eliminated and purifying all foods. And, and so here we see that Jesus in a single stroke uh, now, he puts away all of the dietary restrictions, the food laws of the Old Testament. You see, the, they were ceremonially or, or, or symbolically unclean. But I want you to know and it's important that they were never called sinful. Being ceremonially unclean by touching the dust or touching someone else that was unclean was never sinful. It rendered you into a state of being ceremonially unclean and thus unfit to worship God, which was symbolic of a heart condition. And so it never needed divine forgiveness it just simply needed a ceremonial washing to bring you back into a state of cleanness. And so outward cleanliness was a picture of inward cleanliness. And so here we see that once and for all, Jesus lays it down that what matters is not the state of a man's ritual observance, but the state of a man's the state of your heart. What is the state of your heart this morning? And then his disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? <laughs> if they weren't already upset with Jesus, <laughs> healing on the Sabbath and, uh, and not washing hands before eating and letting his disciples go and pluck grain out and forgiving sins but now he's declaring that, that the mosaic law and the dietary restrictions are no longer applicable but he answered and said every plant which my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted let them alone 
They're blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, then, then both will fall into a ditch. Now, when Jesus calls the Pharisees blind guides, I want you to know that this is a play on their own description of themselves. Because they would refer to themselves as leaders of the blind, the people being spiritually blind, and they were the leaders of the blind. But Jesus says the leaders are blind, leading the blind. And if the blind are leading the blind, they're both going to end up falling into a ditch. He says, every plant that's of my father will not be uprooted. You remember the parable that he had given of the wheat and the tares and, and leave the tares alone and in the end they will be judged. And, and here we see that Jesus is referencing that parable. And then Peter answered and said to him, explain this parable to us. I love this. I think that once again, you know, Peter's mind is just absolutely boggled. He has just turned their world upside down with this teaching. And, and Peter, I, I, what I would love is to hear all the side comments between the two. Do you understand what he's saying? I have no idea what he's saying. You ask him. No, I'm not asking him. You ask him. Peter, you always ask him. Peter, Okay. Can you explain this to us? <laughs> and then Jesus uh, said to him, are you still without understanding? <laughs> Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? with all of the teachings, with the access that the disciples have had, with, with the explanations at night away from everybody around the fires and, and as they ate and walked and breathed and talked and, and Jesus pouring himself into them. Time is running out. The opposition is increasing. The cross is looming. He's trying to retreat and he says to his disciples, do you, do you still not understand what I'm talking about? The entire Sermon on the Mount was all about the condition of the heart. In Mark's gospel, it says, because it goes into the heart. Food is only physical. And so it can only affect the physical. In verse 18, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. You see, the central thrust, the central moral thrust of, of the Sermon on the Mount is that the basis, listen, the basis of all sin is the inner thought, is, is the heart, not the external, but the heart. You remember that Jesus said that if you look at a woman and lust after her, you have committed adultery. If you hate somebody, you've committed murder. These are the trajectories of the sin. It starts with the thought, not with the action. The action is just the, the, the full-born fruit that if given enough time, that it, it will bear into that fruit. But 
Don't think that if you're on that trajectory that you're not guilty of it. You, you see, a person commits sin when he wants to do the action. When you want to do the action, that's sin. I'm so mad at that person. I just can't stand it. Oh, good morning. Yes, God bless you, brother. <laughs> Have a bus day. I hope you fall in a ditch. In the way that, that we are hypocritical with people. What's going on in your heart towards them? Not, did you act out on it yet? You see, we get reserved to, to where we're not acting out. We maintain self-control that gives us an external appearance of holiness and, and righteousness, but, but inside our hearts are judging. Inside our hearts are hating. Inside our hearts are lusting. And, and Jesus says, don't you get it? It doesn't please God if you're obeying externally all of the rules and inside your heart is just a filthy mess before God. The Pharisees who have the mastery of the externals are trying to kill Jesus, are hating him in their hearts and will ultimately succeed on having him crucified while they are externally keeping the law. And Jesus says to the disciples, don't you understand everything that I've been teaching has been directed towards uh, the, the, this issue, the issue of the heart. What matters to God is not so much how we act, but why we act. <laughs> not so much about what we actually do, but what we wish in our heart of hearts to do. He says, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders. That's just hatred towards somebody. Adulteries. When you're married, that's fantasizing about another person. Lusting after them, running real and tape in your head. Fornication, that's when a single person fantasizes about another person. You're imagining it. You're, you're wanting it. You're desiring it. You don't act on it even. Fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands, that does not defile a man. The things that defile a man come not from unwashed hands, but an unwashed heart. And that's what God's concerned with. 
He is concerned with the condition of your heart. Have you ever seen a loveless marriage? What does a loveless marriage look like? Two people stand at the altar, they commit themselves, they enter into the covenant of, of marriage. And in a loveless marriage, even if they're faithful to each other, never cheated, never did anything wrong, provided for you, put a roof over your head, put clothes on your back, met your needs, but there's no love. There is the left side of the brain, love, which is where the definition of love lies, what love is. And there is that left side of the brain that is the decision, it is the purpose, it is the commitment, and I will stay true to the definition and the requirements of what I have committed to. I have committed to you. So I will honor my commitments and I will keep my commitments. But there is no love. Jesus talks about having a loveless relationship with God. A relationship where you now enter into a covenant with God. And you're going to keep the commandments of God. You're going to worship. You're going to not kill people. You're going to stay within the boundaries of what he has required. But, but there's no love. You see, there is the emotional love of being in love with somebody. Being in love is the heart. It is that feeling. It, it, it is that when you see two people that are in love, you see it. You, you see it in their eyes. They light up when the other person comes into their presence. It's the, the delight of their life. You, you ask them what you like about uh, the other person. They go, everything. <laughs> no, like really, what do you everything. I just love the I just feel so good when I'm around them. That, that's not the left side of the brain. I'm asking you, give me some of the characteristics. So they go to the right side. Oh, they're wonderful. Look at them. How can you not love them? That's being in love. You see, when you're loveless, you're just about rules and regulations. You get married, and these are the things that I'm not allowed to do anymore. I'm not allowed to conduct myself as a single man. I'm not allowed to look at another woman. I'm to be this way and that way. And, and these are the rules of being married. When you're in love, you could care less about the rules. You, you wouldn't even look at another woman because she, no one compares to the one that you're in love with. It's like ridiculous. Why would I even want to? And you see, God wants us to be in, listen, in love with him. In love with him. Not just obeying rules and regulations not just engaging the left side. 
He wants your heart. You remember the church in Ephesus in the seven letters. He, he writes to the loveless church. You're doing a lot of great works. You're doing everything you hate and what's wrong. You, you do what's right. You uphold the doctrines. You, you, you're busy. But one thing I've got against you. You left your first love. There's no heart in it. It, it, it. It's just actions now of obedience and duty and responsibility and obligation. And you're fulfilling all of those, but who wants a relationship of duty, responsibility, and obligation? I'm your husband because it's my duty. It's my obligation. It's my responsibility. Yay. <laughs> who wants a wife? It's just duty, responsibility. This is what a wife is supposed to do, so this is what I do. Because I want to be a good wife. But there's no love. You see, the covenant of marriage is the closest thing to experiencing what the oneness with God that we will experience. It, it, it is the earthly experience of connection, of two becoming one, of integrating body, soul, and spirit of heart and mind. And that, that, that is just the example that we get to experience here upon this earth that is just the appetizer for the oneness that we will experience in heaven. The rules and the regulations. Legalism. What is legalism? Legalism is having a relationship with rules and regulations. You can be legalistic in your marriage. It's just rules and regulations. You're home five minutes late. You said that any time you're going to be home more than five minutes late, you're going to text me. You didn't text me. Rules and regulations. Okay, can we move it to seven minutes? <laughs> Instead of I'm so glad to see you, I was worried. I love you care about you. Jesus was asked, what's the most important of all the rules? <laughs> Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of the rules that God's given, he gave them to us because when we break those, we hurt our relationship with him. That's all. If you're chasing after somebody's heart, you don't want to hurt their heart. You don't want to hurt your relationship. You're trying to strengthen your relationship and build it. I don't want dutiful obedience without your heart. Are you in love with God? Do you remember when you first got saved? Do you remember that? Do you remember when, when you felt that way towards God? Where it was just like the greatest thing in the entire world where you couldn't wait for the church to open, 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 let's go, come on. Let's go worship, let's go read the word. I can't believe it. I can't believe how good God is. I can't believe the way he's been pursuing me my entire life. I can't believe the way that he has washed away all my sins. I want to tell the world about him. That's being in love. Uh, 
with God. Versus, oh, I haven't done devotions in a few days. I feel terrible when I don't do devotions. I gotta get back on track with this. Let's go. Ritual, ceremony, duty, obligation. Jesus says, it's all about your heart. It's not about your externals. It's about your heart. When David was chosen as king, you'll remember that Saul is being replaced. And, and, and Samuel now goes to the house of Jesse and and Samuel is told that it's one of the sons of that God has chosen to be the next king over the nation of Israel. Lines him up and Samuel comes to the oldest son, Eliab. He is good looking and handsome and tall and strong. He's the oldest. And Samuel <laughs> says, certainly this is the one. God says, no. Not him. The next son? No. The next son? 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 Oh, goes through all the sons. God says, no. I'm out of options here, God. What's going on? Jesse, you got any more sons? Well, I'll just run to the litter out watching the, the sheep. <laughs> Can you have him brought in? And in comes the youngest in the family, David. Him. God looks at, man looks at the outward. God's looking inside at your heart. Where's your heart? In the church of Ephesus, he says, return. <laughs> Back to your first love. You see, you've been being pursued. You have been being wooed. You have been being given gifts. You have been having songs sung over you. God can't take his eyes off of you. You have never been loved like the love that God has been showering and pouring out upon your life. And all he's wanting you to do is just respond to that love. And when you begin to look at the overwhelming love that he has been pouring out on you, your heart cannot but help to respond and to love him back. Jesus says it's not about your hands. It's not about what you're eating. It's about your heart. May our prayer be today that we would just fall so deeply in love with God that we would never recover. Let's pray. Father God, you're so good to us. You love us beyond imagination, beyond words. You have loved us as a father. You have loved us as a friend. You have saved us, rescued us, 
washed us, cleansed us, made us your own, given us an inheritance, given us a future, given us a hope. We were street kids. And now we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. And may today be a day that changes our lives. May it not just be about rules and regulations, but may it be a heartfelt response to the love that we are receiving. And may we respond to that, not with duty and obligation, but with love in return. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.